0: All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. And we start today with Canada's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. The case count is surging again in most parts of Canada. More than 1000 new cases in British Columbia yesterday. Again, new lockdown measures being introduced in parts of Canada, notably in Ontario today. The pace of vaccination in the country lagging behind many other countries in the world. Now let's talk about the Justin Trudeau government's management of this crisis. Yesterday, federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole slammed what he called the slow and confused response to the pandemic by the Trudeau government. He called for a public inquiry. Here is Aaron O'Toole speaking yesterday.
1: A public inquiry will ensure that all lessons learned from the crisis are publicly aired and improvements can be immediately adopted. Canada must be better prepared for future threats. We cannot afford to once again fail to keep Canadians safe. All
0: right, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole speaking yesterday. All right, let's discuss now with my guest. We have both sides of it for you. Terry Beach on the line. He is the Liberal MP for Burnaby North Seymour. Pleased to welcome him back. Terry, thank you for coming on. Mike, it's great to be here. Appreciate it a lot. Also on the line, Dan Albus. He is the Conservative MP for the Central Okanagan Similkameen. Dan, thank you for being here once again.
2: Thanks for having me as well.
0: Okay, guys. Thank you to both of you, Dan. Let me go to you first. Can you give me the pitch, the case for a public inquiry? Why are the conservatives calling for this now?
2: Well, sure, Mike. So first of all, uh, you know this government has been so slow and wrong on so many aspects of COVID nineteen, and we as a country can't allow this to ever happen again. Look, they were slow on, se- on securing the border. They were slow on rapid tests. They were slow on uh, helping uh, get uh, contract tracing systems set up. They, they didn't even have the stockpiled PPE that we needed, that provinces needed to deal with the first wave. And so we've seen billions of dollars going towards all sorts of, of, of liberal-connected uh, uh, programs, and we want to see some accountability. But we also know that unless these things are looked at by someone independent, someone that is able to say, this is what really happened, and whoever's in government needs to adopt these things to make sure that we secure our country's future. That's what we're talking about.
0: The government's already promised a review, right, like a comprehensive review of what happened. So you're calling for, what, a full independent public inquiry with, what, people giving testimony under oath?
2: Yes, and and that's exactly what Mr. O'Toole said yesterday. Having someone preeminent to head it up so that this cannot be questioned. Look, we we cannot allow the same kind of mistakes to happen again. Some okay. are d- are decisions directly by Justin Trudeau, some may be systemic, so we need to be able to to, to do those things and Aaron O'Toole will make sure that there is a public okay. inquiry.
0: Okay, let me go to liberal MP Terry Beach. Terry, how do you respond to that?
3: Well, first of all, it's great to be here, Mike, and it's great to be with my uh my friend Dan who I haven't seen in person since over a year. Uh I think that the idea of having a a public inquiry and having a reflection on what has happened over the last year is is a pretty good idea. I mean, we've rolled out an unprecedented number of programs, more than 75 programs last year, that have cost billions of dollars. Uh, We definitely need to look at that. Uh, We need to learn lessons and we need to to do better where we can. When we we talk about being slow, though, I, I, I don't think that Dan's necessarily on point. Talked about being slow to secure the border. We, we closed the US border faster than most municipalities closed their libraries. So we've always been incredibly quick. Last year, when we were talking about procuring vaccines, we took an all hands approach and uh, secured not just the PPE we needed, billions of pieces of PPE, not just uh, vaccine contracts with every viable vaccine distributor out there. The first vaccines that we actually signed by coincidence, were Moderna and Pfizer, not knowing that those were going to be two of the best and, and quickest available vaccines. And, and I think that everybody on this line, they heard your introductory introduction, Mike. They, they know that we've had 105,000 cases in BC. Over 5% yeah. of those have been within the last week. We need to be diligent because most every British Columbian will have their first dose within the next seven weeks. So it's just going to be really important for us to be careful over the next seven weeks.
2: Okay. Dan? So let's just talk about our border. We had Adrian Dix as well as other provincial uh, health ministers actually sending staff to the borders uh, and to specifically to our airports uh, because they said handing a pamphlet isn't enough. And when we start talking about uh, making sure that there was PPE, etc., I look at the scathing report by the Auditor General last week that said even the risk assessment model that the government used to determine whether or not, what efforts they should take was wrong. So, you know, well, when Terry says that they, they have been, you know, they were fast on everything, well, you know what, Mike, I take that with some skepticism because that's well, not what how, provincial premiers say.
0: Well, how soon, uh, well, I remember when, When Adrian Dix was calling for the border to be closed. I mean, how quickly after that was the border closed? I think it was a day or two.
2: Well, I'm, right. I'm, I'm talking about I'm talking about air travel, and really yeah. that's where this this is stemmed. We were calling for for tighter provisions at the border, and I remember, you know, the last day that we had Parliament last Mar- in March 2020, the minister said at the time, the health minister said, closing the border doesn't work. And then two days later, they made the changes. Okay. So this is the problem with this particular government.
0: Let, let me ask ask you guys about the the vaccine rollout across the country and where Canada ranks uh, when we compare it to other countries, and I'll play another clip here from the Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, on this point yesterday. Here he is speaking about Canada's vaccine numbers.
4: As of
1: April 1st, only 1.8% of Canadians have been fully vaccinated. In terms of the rest of the world, we rank 44th behind countries like Azerbaijan, Costa Rica, and Serbia, according to the New York Times vaccine tracker.
0: Okay, Aaron O'Toole speaking yesterday. Liberal MP Terry Beach, when Canadians hear this, these numbers and we see Canada ranked 44th, I think, I'm think i sure you would probably agree most Canadians are not very impressed with being ranked 44th in the world. Your thoughts?
3: Well, I think that, um, I mean, how we contextualize that is is quite interesting. Uh, we know that there's going to be 43 million doses available uh, by the end of June. Uh, we know that in terms of users getting their or Canadian thing, their first dose. I think we just surpassed 17% and we're quickly catching up to the rest of the world. I think everybody on this line that is concerned, obviously everybody wants a vaccine. Uh, My mother's in the healthcare system. She just had her vaccine a couple of weeks ago. It was a great relief for me personally. Uh, Calls to my constituency office. Uh, You know, everybody wants to know when they're going to get theirs. And I can tell people that within the next seven weeks, basically everyone in British Columbia is going to have their vaccine. Uh, We're going to have even more doses available for the second dose. And by the time, I mean, we we promised last year that we were going to have 6 million doses by the end of the first quarter and we're six days past the first quarter, and we've already put out 10.5 million doses. So I think we're going to be on track, and I think we're going to achieve our goal of having everybody get their fir- first dose. Uh, we said by September it looks like that's going to be before the end of June, and uh, wow. that means we can start focusing on the future.
0: Okay, Dan. Dan, well, Alice, what do you say to let's that? Let's
2: be mindful that the government originally put all their eggs in the basket with the can- oh, uh, the Can, uh, uh, Sino deal with China. Uh, and then and, and literally did nothing until months later, uh, where other countries got ahead in, in the line to get things like Moderna and Pfizer, and, and, and so we've seen other countries that are racing ahead. And, and it's interesting that Terry is talking to the New York Times and talking about actual data where we can compare different countries' response. Look, the United States and the UK are talking about opening up. California is opening up. Uh, that is something that uh, that this government can't simply uh, you know look the other way on. Canadians are upset. We're seeing a third wave. We're seeing where there's not the protections that other citizens of other countries uh, in the G7 in the G20 are having yeah. that we don't. And that's not, that's not a great what s- should-
0: Dan, what should the government have done? How could they have done better on vaccines? I mean, this country tragically does not have the capacity to produce our own, our own vaccines. And there's been a lot of finger pointing at, at both your parties o- over that and why we don't have that capacity. But short of the capacity to make the vaccine ourselves, we have to buy the vaccine from outside the country. So, so what are you saying? Like, and, and they've got the vaccine. They've bought the vaccines from these companies and the vaccines are coming in. You're saying it could have been quicker?
2: Oh uh, so so again, they started by working with china and and, and didn 't yeah. start getting serious about going and getting other procurement from from other uh, from uh, other options until well after the summer okay Terry that was Beach, the first start but, but when it comes yeah. to domestic supply, yep. you, know, you know Canada does have the ability to if investments were made there, there, are, there are former uh, CEOs of companies that say Canada Canada could have done what the u k did but chose not to. You, you had a Calgary CEO uh, of a right. therapeutics company say, we went to the government and said, we can do this here. Let uh, me go to Terry, and they were turned away.
0: Terry Beach, how do you respond to that?
2: Well, I I just think when when Dan says that we
3: put all of our eggs in one basket, I I just don't think it's true. I mean, we were among the first countries to sign up for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, We actually acquired enough doses of every viable vaccine well before we even knew if they would be viable. And we did that because we knew how important it was uh, to make sure that when a viable vaccine was available, uh, that we could roll it out to Every single Canadian citizen, uh, because the strength of our economy is totally based on the health. And I think if you look at the health outcomes in, British, in Canada uh, and in British Columbia versus other jurisdictions, I think we've done very well. And I think that's positioned us incredibly well uh, to look for a positive future where the economy can come roaring back. And I think that's what you're going to see. Uh, us setting up for in the budget as it comes out later this month
0: okay terry let me ask you one final question just to clarify on something that you said earlier with regard to o'toole's call for a public inquiry and you've, you've said that was a good idea the government has already committed to a review of the management of the pandemic o'toole's calling for something different like a public inquiry be completely independent people giving testimony under oath are you saying that you feel that that's a, that should be done that that's something the government should do
3: I I mean, exactly the terms and the standards under which we're going to look at what's happened over the last year. I don't know, and I'm open to all ideas. I think it's a great idea, given the unprecedented nature of what our country has just gone through and the increasing globalization of our world to reflect on what we've done, what we could do better and improve in the future. I always think that's a good idea. Exactly how that happens, I'm not exactly sure.
0: Okay, gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for coming on today with a really good discussion. I appreciate it a lot. That is Terry Beach. He is the Liberal MP in Burnaby, North Seymour. Dan Albus, he's the Conservative MP in the Central Okanagan. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the delays in the replacement of the Patello Bridge. It's been pushed back a year now to 2024, delayed uh, largely because of COVID. Have a listen to this here now. This is BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming.
3: Uh, the contract was awarded in February 2020, and we all know what happened the next month. We went into lockdown Uh, March would mark the beginning of the pandemic. So there were some delays that were just about adjusting to new safe work protocols. Those had to be developed. Uh, So we're hoping that those few months of delay can be made up uh, in the timeline for the completion of the bridge.
0: Okay, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming there. This is a $1.37 billion project to replace this bridge. It was originally supposed to open in 2023 delayed now until 2024. Now remember how this project had been fast-tracked and given priority over another pressing project in the province, and that's the replacement of the chronically clogged Massey Tunnel. So the government decided the Patello Bridge was a higher priority. Now it's being delayed for a year. Let's get the opposition's take on it. My guest is Liberal MLA Michael Lee. He is the official opposition transportation critic. Pleased to welcome him back. Michael, thanks for coming on.
1: Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you for being here. So in some ways, I guess maybe it's not surprising that this project is delayed. It seems like a lot of these big projects typically get delayed. But your thoughts on this announcement that the Patello project is delayed for a year?
1: Well, this is just another example of how the NDP can't get anything built. All they do is delay and increase costs. Not only uh, can the NDP government not get a replacement done for the George Massey Tunnel, they can't even get a bridge built to Surrey, pushing this out for further delay by another year. And clearly the NDP are not being transparent and accountable what is actually causing the delay. Uh, The news release uh, that they put out last week makes mention of uh, fish windows, and those are certainly known ahead of time, and should have been factored in. And how exactly is COVID causing a delay when we see other construction projects around the province uh, still underway? Okay, what, what are another the- example, Mike, of the CBA problems, which is when we look at the Highway 1 expansion past Kamloops to Alberta, we've seen delays, increased costs, reduction of scope. Now we're seeing two out of the three with the Patello replacement as well.
0: Okay, I want to get into that CBA program, and I'll explain that for the listeners in a minute, but you mentioned you mentioned fish windows. Is that like a construction schedule around the salmon migration? Is that what you're talking about there?
1: Yeah, in terms of in-river work, there does need to be uh, periods of time where that construction work should not be taking place to protect uh, the fisheries in the, river, in the river there, Yeah, and uh, that's something, though, Mike, that would have been factored in at the beginning of this project when the contractor was scoping out the timelines for this project these are fishery windows that should have been known and are known well in advance and would not be the source of the delay that the government is pointing to
0: okay what about the pandemic though the government also saying because of the pandemic that's another reason for the delay you buying that
1: well you know i think their announcement really raises more questions than answers here uh, tell us what the problems are. Uh, obviously, we know that COVID, we want to stay all healthy and safe, of course. But what are the specific challenges with COVID-19 that are leading to this delay? We know that the NDP have had difficulties with transparency, and now they're giving us information uh, on, on what is causing this delay. We're not seeing any of that information at all.
0: Okay, you mentioned the community benefit agreement that covers this project, right? And that's like the workers on the project are they're required to be members of certain unions, right? Is that the main, is that your main complaint? You think that what drives up the cost? Well, we've
1: seen that uh, with the nature of CBAs, they unnecessarily drive up the cost of projects while driving down their scope and causing significant delays. We've seen this with the highway expansions for Salmon Arm West, uh, Chase Creek Road, uh and Kicking Horse Cannon, along with this Patello Bridge replacement and the Broadway subway project. We're seeing increased costs because of uh, the types of uh, references to strictly only 19 building trade unions. Uh, They're eliminating uh, effectively all of the other workers in this province and their ability to work on these projects. And that's driving up costs. It's it's reducing the number of bidders on these projects. Understand that there were originally 20 potential bidders on the patella replacement and uh, ended up being only two at the end of the day because they all dropped out uh, because of the when they realized the implications of the cba and this is well, increased costs on this project at an estimate of a hundred million dollars
0: well okay but the government is saying that the budget for this patello bridge project is still on target it's 1.37 billion dollars and they say that despite this year-long delay that the budget remains on track 1.37 billion so they say the costs have not gone up
1: yeah i think that's Uh, really misleading in in many respects because the project is not even fully underway yet. We're at the very early stages where still we're having preparatory work being done, uh, uh, materials being ordered, but no real construction taking place. So we're very early on in this stage of this project and now it's being pushed out in another year.
0: Okay, speaking to Liberal MLA Michael Lee, he's the official opposition transportation critic. Do you think that this is the most high- high-priority project in the province that replacing the patello bridge i mean that is an old bridge that does have to be replaced do you think that it makes sense for the government to be pursuing this one first or do you think they should have done the massey tunnel replacement first
1: mike uh, there are a lot of uh, important infrastructure projects that are, that are really uh needed around the province uh, we see the expansion of highway one um, out uh, uh, beyond uh, Langley uh, we've and hopefully up to Surrey uh, or Abbotsford in the future, uh, the Taylor Bridge replacement. Uh, George Massey Tunnel has been uh, cancelled in terms of that replacement uh, over 1,300 days ago. Uh, this is a situation where the government has been sitting on a business plan for now uh, three months and longer. So they're delaying further project work that needs to be done and making sure that we have and get our fair share of federal dollars, because we know that coming out of COVID-19, there's going to be a lot of infrastructure dollars that would need to be deployed to get the economy moving again. And this government does not have an overall infrastructure plan. That's something that I've written to the minister about and talked about within the House as well in Victoria. We need to continue to move forward with a stronger plan for the whole problem.
0: Okay, let me ask you about, you know, you're complaining about these uh, community benefit agreements driving up the cost of these projects, the government is saying this one is still on budget. You know, a lot of the NDP, if they were here right now, if Horgan was here right now, he would point the finger right back at you guys and say, well, when the liberals were in power, there were a whole bunch of projects that went over budget, like the Portman Bridge or the the, the new roof on top of BC Place Stadium, uh, the, the Vancouver Convention Center. All of these projects went over budget on when you guys are in power, what do you say to that?
1: Well, you know, Mike, I, I think then in terms of what needs to be done for the province itself, we're seeing costs that are on these projects that are now 35% to 85% above the original budgeted price of these projects, including, as I mentioned, the expansion of Highway 1 out to at Alberta. Uh, this is leading to reduced scope. And less of a highway. We saw this uh, with projects that uh, just like back in the NDP days in the 90s with the Island Highway Project, where you got less highway for more money. This has been the challenge with the CBAs. We know that we want to continue to improve the training in this province. But what yeah. are we getting from this project right now? Because right now all we're getting is increased costs with less less project being built.
0: Let me ask you another question about the Massey Tunnel, because I think for a lot of people who waste a lot of their lives in traffic jams around there. I mean, the traffic has been less of a problem during the pandemic, but at some point we'll get back to normal and, you know, people just watching their lives tick away as they sit in these mind-numbing traffic jams. That should be a high priority to replace that tunnel. And when I see this Patello Bridge project delayed, and one of the reasons is because they want to protect fisheries, and doing work in the river they're worried about the impact on the fisheries that's what makes me wonder about this idea to replace a Massey tunnel with another tunnel like to actually be digging in the Fraser River and put another tunnel in there with very sensitive salmon stocks and sturgeon fisheries and, and all the other environmental impacts like i I always thought like doesn't it make more sense to build a bridge instead of another tunnel do you have any thoughts on that
1: well, as you know, Mike, the previous BC Liberal government had that plan in place. We were moving forward for a bridge that would have been built next year. And it would be, yeah. would have been the bridge that would not have uh, had the environmental impact that you're talking about. Because uh, we know that to put a tube uh, in the Fraser River will disturb the environment there and the fisheries. And that's been the concern with the local Swatsom First Nation. They have these concerns relating to this project. And this puts this government in a hard place in terms of making a decision about moving forward with the project. Uh, This takes us back to uh, potentially a smaller replacement uh, if it's a bridge and a a tunnel that would be uh, uh, leading to more delays in terms of the environmental impacts and the necessary consultation with First Nations. This is the challenge for this government, and this is the reason why we're still sitting there with the the largest and the worst bottleneck in the province with no solution. Uh, The government has only spent uh 40 million dollars on new lights well that's not a solution that's a stopgap measure to get us through the next couple of years but this is a project now that minister Fleming has said he is hoping will be built in the next decade 10 years from now
0: michael thank you for coming on today
1: thanks for having me on again mike
0: all right, welcome back to the show. As COVID cases surge and hospitalizations rise in B.C., questions are being asked about British Columbia's response to this crisis. Has B.C. botched its pandemic response? What needs to be done differently? The headline today on the Tai website, how B.C. fumbled the third wave. Experts say leaders were warned of the variant threat, But misread key data and failed to respond fast enough. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show the writer of the article, Andrew Nikiforik. He's a contributing editor at the Taiz, an award winning writer, including two books on pandemics The Fourth Horseman and Pandemonium. Andrew, thanks a lot for coming on.
4: Thank you, Mike
0: thanks a lot. The very timely article that you've written, and uh, I read it this morning. and you interviewed a lot of the uh, leading experts in British Columbia, many of whom have appeared on this show as well. And a lot of them are saying that they warned the government uh, particularly about the threat of these variant strains of Covid. And what are they telling you? Like what are the experts saying about these variants and the response to them?
4: Well, I mean, one of the key things the these researchers have said, um is that look, we knew about the variants months and months ago I mean they first the, the 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 first critical variant emerged in in the United Kingdom in September last year it exploded in that country in November of that year, and as a result <clears throat> the country was forced into a major highly restrictive lockdown um while this variant was was burning its way through the united kingdom uh, more people died in the space of three months in england than in uh, over the entire course of the pandemic uh, because of the variant so we we knew this variant was trouble um the, uh, researchers warned the government of british columbia in december that the variants are probably here we need to be on top of them we need to do really good surveillance, really good reporting, <clears throat> and if necessary, we need to shut things down in order to keep them from exploding because it's much harder to contain them and control them uh, when you've got 1,000 cases a day than when you have, uh, you know, 10, 20, or 40 cases a day. So, I mean, that, that, that's that's one, one big issue. Another big issue is... is is again the, the government's kind of reluctance to learn from past mistakes. Uh, we we you know we've, we've we know now that when that that the only way to respond to rising cases is is to be very swift and um, and to, you've got to act rapidly and um, and forcibly. You know nobody likes lockdowns. I mean, uh, but that... They do work, and they work because they, they cut down on people's mobility. And if you cut down on people's mobility, you are going to cut down on transmissions. Um, but we didn't learn that lesson. Uh, we thought, you know, I think the government gambled, like every provincial government at the moment, uh, well, uh the six populous provinces, thought, oh, geez, we'll, we'll, we'll just be able to manage this. We'll, we'll run it with the vaccines. Well, that's not what has happened anywhere. Okay. I mean, Ontario, Alberta, and B.C. are all in big trouble.
0: Right. One of the experts that you quote, Andrew, in your article today is Professor Sarah Otto from UBC who has been a, a guest here on CKNW and, and she says to you, We had an opportunity to stop these variants, but we didn't take it. We could have gone for zero variants back in January and you reveal how she would written to the government officials and public health officials pleading mm-hmm. for intervention months ago on this. Like what exactly is she looking for? So she's look she was she was calling for like a strict lockdown?
4: Well no, well <clears throat> she would have probably supported uh, a a lockdown had we had the accurate data. The problem here is is that the British Columbia government didn't have a real handle on how many variants were out there, where they were moving and what populations they were moving. We didn't really have that that data. And so what Sarah Otto was actually asking the government for was, look, improve your data collection. Um uh you know and 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 uh, and do it quickly because these variants are, are moving fast so that was the first thing she really wanted was let's let, let's improve our data collection let's and let's get on top of this and let's know yeah. how severe the threat is okay. and you know we didn't do that in time
0: right we're hearing this a lot from from many people we we had an expert on the show yesterday who was calling for a covid zero strategy a, a severe lockdown to try and extinguish the virus as as much as we possibly can. When you take a look around uh, the rest of Canada or or around the world, like you said earlier, that lockdowns work. I mean, if you take a look at a province like Ontario, for example, that had some stricter measures than British Columbia, British Columbia has had, I think, fewer kind of lockdown measures compared to some other provinces in Ontario, like Ontario, for example. I mean, they're in terrible shape, and today they're talking you know they're closing schools they're talking about a possible stay at home order in Ontario today uh, even yeah. though they had some stricter measures than us so where is the evidence that the locks the lockdowns actually work <laughs>
4: well, you know it, it <clears throat> the the problem with lockdowns is is you can't you can't be half-assed about it um, and you also have to have some strategic goals. It, it, the problem with Ontario, Alberta, and BC is, you know, they will have their lockdowns, and you can argue about how tough they are, or how restrictive they are, or if they're adequate enough. Uh, and then they open up again. So you're on this roller coaster. So you, you are you are implementing public health measures that could be very effective, but you're but but you're never taking them. Uh, to to the final point um you know as uh, carolyn colin um who's uh you know at, uh <clears throat> a carolyn disease Collin. modelist yeah. yeah colin she said i mean she used a wonderful metaphor she said look it's like inviting a pest control officer to your house and then saying oh it's okay to only get rid of half half the mice in your house um and <laughs> then well and then why don't you come back in six weeks or six months and we'll do it all over again right well So there's no strategic goals being set with these lockdowns so in in terms of let's get the numbers down let's keep them down and let's if we can let's go to zero because if we go to zero then we'll have more options and then we don't have to do this over again right you know, this I, to get on the roller coaster let's end the damn roller coaster all right i can um, certainly
0: understand the frustration that some people feel who especially if they if they're calling for a, a stricter lockdown and they look at the surge that we're going through right now especially if they've been calling for it for months but I, I wonder if it's um, if British Columbia is, is really that much of an outlier compared to say other provinces in Canada or other countries around the world. I mean, we take a look at the surge of cases in Europe. There, a lot of countries there are in terrible shape. The United States, where they've they've vaccinated a lot more people than we have. I mean, their cases are going up, like up to nine to fifteen percent increases in cases. So I'm mm-hmm. just wondering, like, when you take a look at other jurisdictions, is British Columbia really all that much different? From the way this virus is behaving in other jurisdictions,
4: well, just take a look at Atlantic Canada or the Northwest yeah. Territories, uh, Yukon, Nunavut. I mean, they, they all of the, all of those jurisdictions went for uh, for zero or close to zero. Uh, wasn't it easier wasn't it easier, for, they, wasn't they, it easier? wasn't it easier? Wasn't it easier for them to beat them down really fast?
0: Yeah, but isn't it easier for them when you're in a, a like you know, in the in the far north of the country, is sparsely populated, it's a little easier to control. Uh, control the spread of the virus isn't it in a place like that
4: well no i mean uh, (laughs) the northwest territories is a huge vast place they made some very tough decisions i mean the the, you know the the jurisdictions that have been most effective at controlling this virus have had the toughest border restrictions um same thing with atlantic canada you know, right. there, there's a hell of a lot of truck traffic that goes through New Brunswick and, and other parts of, the, of Atlantic Canada, and they've managed that <clears throat> very well, but they've also had, you know, the, their tough border controls, and, and they've said, look, we, we can't accept uh, high levels of, of this virus. And so they, and as a result, they have tremendous <clears throat> flexibility in, in beating it back. And uh, so when the variant did arrive in Newfoundland, uh, <clears throat> Uh, you know they were able to get under control very right. quickly, same thing in New Brunswick, okay, well, you know that's going to be pretty complicated here in b c at the moment because right. we've allowed things to get out of control
0: okay there's a cost to a lockdown strategy as as well though, right? like you might be successful in driving down the rate of transmission of the virus, but then people also point out, well, what about the impact on mental health of kids? I mean, I just had a a distraught mom on the on the open line telling me about her her kid uh. Going through depression when when he was out of school, um, yep. mental health impacts. I mean, how would the suicide rate go up? I mean, we have saw a surge in opioid overdose deaths during the pandemic here. Maybe it's related to the stress and strain of the pandemic of people doing more dangerous drugs. What yep. about the what about that calculation? Like the downside, the downside of a uh, lockdown. That's,
4: those are very very important calculations and. And what we are seeing with our current approach, which is let's go on this roller coaster, let's go up, let's close, let's close her down, let's open her up, let's close her down, let's open her up, that's devastating. That's a devastating uh, approach to dealing with the pandemic that everyone is suffering from. Um, and you know, and and countries that 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 you know that exercise some leadership, like New Zealand and Australia, and said, "Well, wow, okay, w- we're just going to eliminate this damn thing," and. Um, and then uh, as a consequence, their, their mental health is not an issue and their economies have rebounded. I mean, there was just a, a recently a really good study that came out of an economic institute in France that, you know, their overwhelming conclusion was that countries that got COVID to zero uh, have, have done better economically yeah. and socially than countries that have gone on the roller coaster. I mean, roller coaster is a political choice. <clears throat> and uh, it, has not serve, it is not serving British Columbia well at this point in time. You know, despite the fact that BC's done lots of things very well and, and really responded to the pandemic uh, in, uh, in a very strong way. The, you know, we did well with the first wave. We did right. poorly with the second wave, and now we're into a third wave. We shouldn't be into a third wave.
0: Okay, Andrew, last question for you. If you were to take a look around other jurisdictions, other countries around the world, what who do you think is kind of the gold standard or which country has done done the best here in terms of managing like a lot of people would say New Zealand. Is that is that would, would that be the top of your yeah, list? Well,
4: I mean, there are a lot of different countries, a lot of you know, a lot of countries that have used different approaches and 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 combined it with really strong leadership and 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 very strategic goals. So New Zealand is one, Taiwan is another, Australia is another, Vietnam um, uh, Norway, Iceland, Finland, um, you know, there, there, um, Bhutan, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of countries all over the world that have, uh, have, have done really, really good jobs. And, and there's been a huge, the huge issue there is that, uh, you know, and, and then let's not forget, let's <laughs> Atlantic Canada is right up there among yeah. the very best, Right. you know, uh, right in our own country, we have one of the best examples Uh, of of what success looks like, and we have not learned from it, and we have ignored it at our peril.
0: Andrew, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot.
4: Well, thank you for your time, Mike.
0: All right. Welcome back to the show. One of the most fascinating, though extremely tragic, murder cases we've seen in British Columbia was the brutal... 1987 murders of a young Victoria couple, Jay Cook. He was just 20 years old. His girlfriend, Tanya Van Kylenborg, she was just 18. They took a road trip in 1987 to Washington State, where they were later found murdered. This is a case that went cold for decades. No arrests, no suspects until the incredible power of genetic DNA was used to crack this case and arrest and convict a killer and I've got one of the leading experts in the world standing by to talk about this CC more but first have a listen to this report here now in this case here's Global BC reporter ramina Dea
5: Almost 32 years ago, Van Kylenborg and Cook left Sanich bound for Seattle on an overnight trip. The couple vanished. A week later, Van Kylenborg's body found in a ditch, raped and shot in the head. Two days oh. later, Cook's body found dumped near a bridge, beaten and strangled. Blood, semen, a palm print. The suspect's DNA was always there, but no matches in police databases. No progress until a genealogist recently used GEDmatch, a public DNA database, to find two distant cousins, which led police to Talbot.
0: Okay, that would be the suspect in the case, William Talbot, who was later tried and convicted of these crimes. Let's discuss now with my guest, Cece Moore. She's a genetic genealogy expert, founder of DNA Detectives, and I'm uh, delighted to welcome her back to the show. Cece, thanks for coming on again.
5: Thanks for having me on. I'm always happy to, to come and talk with you.
0: It's, it's always great to have you here because I just find your area of work just f- absolutely fascinating, the power of this science, and we see results again and again and how this type of technology can crack these cases. And, and I know this particular case, the murders of, of these two young people, uh, are very important ones to you that you had a, a, a key role in. Can you tell me, like how did you get involved uh, in that case?
5: It was actually the first case that I used the techniques that I developed for adoption for a law enforcement case. And so it was important to me for a number of reasons. I have a personal connection to British Columbia. My dad grew up there. And also, it was the first time I decided to use my skills and these techniques for law enforcement purposes. It ended up becoming important worldwide because it was the very first case where a suspect that was identified through investigative genetic genealogy was convicted through a jury trial.
0: Yeah, no, it really is an historic case for sure. And uh, it's just amazing your involvement in here because before you got into this area of sort of criminal research uh, using DNA technology, you were involved in like you mentioned like researching helping people like research their family trees and that kind of thing through DNA, right?
5: Yes. Um I've worked on the PBS television series Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. since right. 2013 as their genetic genealogist. So I've been working to Uh, show people the power of genetic genealogy to reveal family mysteries, uh, to resolve those mysteries, and to resolve personal identity mysteries as well. So it can be used to identify, say, a great-great-grandparent who's been lost to history, or it can be used to help someone find their birth parents if they're adopted, donor-conceived, or a lot of people just don't know who their biological father is, so we do a lot of those cases as well.
0: Yeah, right, and that kind of thing is becoming more and more popular as, as people research their own family history. Um, the, the case of this, this young couple that was so savagely killed here is just brutal. Um, the key here was the preservation of DNA evidence from the crime scene, correct?
5: Right. We never could have done what we did and help solve the case if it wasn't for those original crime scene investigators who were very forward-thinking and collected evidence that later would end up being the key.
0: Right. So police were able to have, there was a semen sample at the scene, and uh, so they were able to extract the DNA from that. And now, how were you able to use that DNA sample then to narrow down the list of suspects eventually uh, eventually leading to this killer?
5: Well, the type of analysis we use is very different from traditional forensic profiles. So traditionally, police are looking at a handful of genetic markers, about 20 of them. But we have to go back to the original crime scene DNA sample and reanalyze it using more advanced technology. And we look at 850,000 genetic markers across the genome, and that allows us to find distant cousins than to build their family trees and reverse engineer the family tree of that unknown suspect based right. on who he is sharing DNA with. And it can be very, very small amounts of DNA.
0: Right, and that's what led you to this guy, William Talbot. Um, how did you feel like when you, when you first were getting these positive matches and you were able to, to use your, your skills here to trace this to a, like an individual family? and you knew you were getting close to the killer, what is that like? Like, what, is it, what does it feel like to you when you, when you know that you've, you're on the right track?
5: You know, I've worked so many unknown parentage cases, adoptees, etc., as I mentioned, that I know when I'm getting close. So yeah. when I saw this match list at GEDmatch, once that uh, populated, I could see we had two matches who shared enough DNA to be the unknown suspect's second cousin, and right. they were from different sides of his family tree. So I knew very, very quickly that we were going to be able to identify him. The only caveat would be if he himself was adopted or if he has, uh, say, an unknown father. Right. I started working on it. And within two hours, I had found his identity. It's wow. just a you know, really crazy feeling to be the only person in the world who knows what this person did except them. Themselves. You know, right. it's unlikely he had told anybody else. So I knew when I was looking at his name that I was probably the only one in the world who knew that he had killed these people.
0: Yeah, that that's incredible. And then you had undercover police officers began to, to follow him and they had him under surveillance. And what they needed was a, a, a present day DNA sample that they can compare right to the crime scene DNA. And as I recall... CC, I believe they followed this guy around for several days and they finally saw him throw, I think it was like, was it a disposable coffee cup that he threw in the garbage and they were able to get some DNA off
5: it? It actually fell out of his truck when he opened the door. Oh, it was trash. He he accidentally littered, apparently. It'll show you not to litter, right?
0: Yeah, right. Right. (laughs) So they were able to get this trash that fell out of his truck and then they were able to get some DNA, a DNA sample off of that cup.
5: Yes, so this, yeah. when when we use this process, investigative genetic genealogy, it's merely a tip. It's a highly scientific tip, but it's the same as if somebody called into, say, Crime Stoppers with a name. They have to investigate that person using their traditional police uh, investigation techniques, and that right. includes collecting DNA. And so there would never be an arrest based on genetic genealogy alone. They would have to collect a DNA sample and compare it to that traditional forensic profile that they have.
0: Right. And once they got that DNA sample, they knew they had the guy because it was an exact match to the crime scene DNA, right?
5: Yes, that's correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I know, I actually know that some members of the Van Kylenborg family, and I, I know how grateful they are to you. For everything that you did in, in in cracking this case, let let me ask you this. I think this is very interesting that the power of this technology, and we see uh, this week in in Toronto, uh, police uh, police trying to use this technology to crack another couple of cold cold case murders, and police and police uh, describing some frustration, saying they wish they had a database, a DNA database where they could they could check these things like if you were arrested for a crime if the authorities or investigators could take a dna sample from you and put it into a database and save it just like uh like a fingerprint that they could check later um do you think and and i'm certain there are there are privacy concerns around that. But does that make sense to you that if someone's convicted of a crime or they're a suspect that they should surrender a DNA sample that would then be saved in a database to be checked later?
5: I don't think anyone's arguing against collecting one from someone who's convicted of a violent crime. The question is whether you collect it at arrest for a violent crime. And now yeah. in the United States, 30 st- over 30 states are allowing that. And that DNA sample then can be compared to all of the unsolved cold cases that have DNA on them. So there's always that tension between public safety and victims' rights uh, as compared to the rights of someone arrested for a crime. So I think it really depends on what society values more. In the United States, the Supreme Court has upheld this uh, ability to collect uh, at a felony arrest varies across states exactly what the law is, um, but for violent crimes is often when they're collecting it. I, I, From my understanding, Canada is not doing that, and certainly not to the degree right. that the U.S. is. If they did do that, a lot more crimes would be solved sooner before the family members of the victims are gone. I hate seeing so many cases where we're finally able to help solve them and the parents are, are deceased. Sometimes siblings are also deceased husbands, children, even. And so I think it really depends what you value more. Are you, right. you know, really wanting to protect uh, people's privacy and the rights of the accused? Or are you more interested in public safety and stopping these criminals in, in their tracks before they can become career criminals?
0: All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about the power of genetic DNA to solve cold case murders, my guest is CeCe Moore, genetic genealogy expert. She's the founder of DNA Detectives. Should police officers be able to collect a DNA sample from you and have it on file if you're arrested? See what you think about that. Let's go to the phone lines. Rick and Camloops. Hey, Rick. Hey. What do you think?
4: Well, I think... You should voluntarily give your DNA if you're innocent. If you have a guilty conscience, you might have done another crime that you don't want to give your DNA for. So, give it to them, prove your innocence, and then they're they're done with you.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people might uh, might agree with you. Like right now, CC with the data banks that that you work with are a, a lot of them like people who have voluntarily uh, shared their DNA.
5: Yes, the databases I work with are all voluntary. They're all genealogy databases, and we're really only limited to two of them. There are three more, much larger ones, that are barring police use. So the people who have said, yes, I'm good with this, I support this, I want to help solve these crimes, have to upload to either GEDmatch or a company called Family Tree DNA. If you've tested at Ancestry DNA or 23andMe or MyHeritage, then you're not in that pool that we can compare against. That's very but interesting. But I totally agree with the caller. One thing yeah. that people don't think about is it rules people out. It actually yeah, right. exonerates people, yeah. and so there's no reason for someone to be suspected if they'll provide that DNA. They can get the focus off of them right away and onto somewhere, you know, into another direction. Well, that's a great that point. Will help. Go ahead. That-
0: yeah, I mean that's a great point that it might reduce uh, false false accusations against people.
5: Right, and that's one of the arguments for it. Is just yeah, you know, keep them from going down that road in the very beginning. Yeah, exactly. Let's go back to the phone
0: lines. Mike and Langley. Hey, Mike. Oh yeah. Hi. Right, go ahead. Good. Um, so I was thinking about this. It's, it's a bit of a slippery slope, uh,
3: obviously, between privacy and all of that kind of stuff. So here's a compromise that I thought about, and I, I shared with the person that was taking our calls here. How would it be? Personally, I will never voluntarily give my DNA to anybody. That's just my personal choice. I don't trust a lot of the systems out there and whatnot, but that's a, a side issue. How is this for a compromise? If you get arrested and charged, they take your DNA, they can run it, they can do whatever, however, if you are then found not guilty or charges are dropped or something along those lines, that DNA evidence gets destroyed. Now, of course, have got to have safeguards in place to make sure that somebody's <laughs> going to properly destroy it,
0: but maybe that might be a bit of a compromise. Okay, we just got a minute left. Cece Moore, what do you think?
5: Well, that's exactly what they're doing in the United States and most of the states that allow that collection. The the question is should it be automatic or should the person have to apply to have it deleted or removed? And in some yeah. states here, you actually have to apply and it costs money. And so there's an argument there, but I think it's a great solution.
0: Okay, we're just running out of time. Paul and Port Moody. Paul, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead.
4: Uh, no way, absolutely not. Humans happen to be valuable. They they would they would arrest people just to get your DNA, even if it's a false arrest, as well as losing uh, your your DNA and it, oh, all of a sudden it's at a crime scene. No way. This is okay. uh, this this is
0: outrageous. Thirty. Okay. So, we got thirty seconds left, Cece. What do you think?
5: I think everybody has the right to determine how their DNA is used, and so I do. Understand this caller's argument. You yeah. might think that I don't, but I do. Um, yeah. Canada does have much stronger privacy laws than the U.S. It's already much harder for us to solve crimes there using genetic genealogy. So it really okay. just depends on how the majority of your, you know, your community feels.
0: Thank you for coming on today. It's always fantastic to have you here.
5: Hey, thanks for having me. It's always fun.